Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. All right, we've got not only a great interview for you guys, but a bit of a living legend here. Um, uh, Larry Lessig joins us. He is not only a professor of law at Harvard Law School, uh, he is the founder of the Center for Internet and Society, founding board member of Creative Commons, founder of Root Strikers, uh, founder of Mayday Pack, uh, now involved with Equal Citizens, I can go on and on. Uh, and one of the guys who, I don't know if this speaks well of you or not, helped me uh, to understand the need for Wolfpack and to start Wolfpack, so thank you. Thank you for what you've done. All right, uh, and, and also ran for president to, to boot, <laughs> just that little thing as well. Uh, which uh, I, I think actually had a terrific and really important impact in the 2016 election, which we could get to here. Uh, I want to find out what uh, Equal uh, Citizen is all about, Citizens about. And then uh, as usual, I want to dive into the different issues <laughs> and and maybe even get into your past a little bit. Because you and I share a couple of things that I'm not sure we ever really discussed on air. So uh, we were both Republicans. Um, we both realized the error of our ways. <laughs> we both grew up. <laughs> we both grew up, that's right. We both went to Penn, although I know another guy who went to Penn and did not grow oh. up. <laughs> that guy unfortunately He's is a, a president. transfer student. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Okay, so first let's start with the news of the day. So what is Equal Citizens? So Equal Citizens grew out of the campaign. Because what the campaign taught me is, as much as money in politics is a corrupting influence in our system, it really stands for a more fundamental problem, which is we are not equal citizens. In a thousand ways, this system renders us unequal. So money in politics is an example, gerrymandering is another example, the way voters votes get suppressed is a third example. But the one that became most striking at the end of that election was the way we elect our president. We do not have equal votes in the way we elect our president. The votes of a Republican in a state like California are worth zero in the presidential election system. Or a vote of a Democrat in Montana worth zero because of the way we've allowed the states to construct the Electoral College. And so what Equal Citizens is trying to do is to rally people to this fundamental recognition that the one equality the framers of our constitution thought they gave us, the idea of equal political equality, we have lost. And we have to fight for that equality in every sphere where it's important. And we're gonna start in the context of the presidential election. I don't know why you think that that would be a democratic issue, given that two out of the last five elections, the guy who had, or the person who had more votes somehow lost. Yeah. How does that not strike everyone as undemocratic? Yeah, of course. Is that it amazing? Is. It is. And what people do is they say, well, okay, but this is what the framers of our Constitution gave us. But what they miss is that the framers of the Constitution did not give us this problem. This problem is caused by the winner take all system that the states have adopted for allocating their electoral college votes. That's not in the Constitution. So it's because the states are adopting winner take all 
um, that we have this incredibly precarious situation where we estimate upwards to 30% of presidents going forward are gonna be minority elected presidents, people who lost the popular vote, but win in the electoral college, unless we change this system now. So uh, the only bad luck that the country has is that uh, Republicans have lost the popular vote and won the electoral college. And I don't say that as a partisan, not because I'm progressive. It's just because the Republicans are such a stronger political party that if they had gotten robbed twice, yeah. there's no way we're not changing it immediately. But the Democrats are all over as usual. So well, remember in 2012, that brief moment when Donald Trump thought that Barack Obama had lost the popular vote, but won in the Electoral College. And he went on a tirade on Twitter about how this was absolutely the most ridiculous thing in a democracy. And we had to have a revolution and march down to Washington and demand that we get a democracy back. Well, you're right, that's exactly what it would take, that, we, that it went the other way. But I think um, people, when they think about it, think, what the hell? How can we have a system where we count the votes for the president, but we throw away the votes of people in states who don't happen to vote for the winner of that particular state? It makes no sense. So it seems like there's a couple of different ways to handle this problem. I know there's a campaign to get enough states to say they're getting rid of the electoral college. And then if they get to pass the magic number, so um, and then there's this way. So can you explain the difference between the two? Yeah, there are basically three solutions here. Okay. One is to amend the Constitution, and that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, there's literally nobody working on the idea of getting an amendment to the Constitution to eliminate the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. The second idea is the National Popular Vote Initiative, and that's really a genius idea um, to get states to say that. If 270 electoral college votes commit to this, they will promise to pledge their electors to whoever wins the popular vote nationally. That would solve the problem overnight. The problem is that they've hit a very thick red line in gathering states to join that compact. They basically have all the predictable Democratic states who've joined. Um, but what they need to get is a significant number of Republican states to join. And unfortunately, the Republicans have realized that their best shot at winning the White House is to maintain the currently unequal electoral college system that there is. So that's the real struggle that they're facing right now. And they've got a great campaign to push it, but even the most optimistic among them think that it's gonna take six years, eight years, maybe 10 years before they can get the supports in the state legislatures to win. So that brings it to the third solution, which is, a, which is a lawsuit. And so what we are going to do, and what we're doing is launching right now a campaign to crowdfund the support for this, is to bring a suit in two states that basically says the amended constitution we have, that has the 14th amendment with the equal protection clause at the core, um, uh, requires that states not allocate their votes in such a fundamentally unequal way. The principle of one person, one vote must require proportional allocation of these electors in these states. And if we can get a court to consider this argument, which after Bush v. Gore has become an incredibly powerful argument, we think we have enough to destabilize the current political um, uh, status quo and get people to think once again about what really makes sense here. So let's talk, you touched on Bush v. Go there. Uh, given how the Supreme Court ruled in that case, isn't that wonderful, ironic precedent for you guys? Absolutely. Yeah. Before Bush v. Gore, there was a case 50 years ago where um, a, a lower court was asked, 
does winner take all violate the equal protection clause? And what the court said is, yeah, winner take all is really grotesque in the way that it eliminates the votes of people in this arbitrary way. But to violate the 14th Amendment, you have to show that the system was invidious, meaning they intended it to create this terrible result. Okay, and under that standard, there's no way to attack it. But in Bush versus Gore, the court looked at Florida's system for recounting votes and said, oh, this is just you know producing unequal results and we're gonna strike it down as violating the Equal Protection Clause without any effort to demonstrate that the standard was adopted with invidious purpose. There was no invidiousness there. It was just in the rush of times, they had different ways to recount those votes. So Bush versus Gore changes the standard that applies for evaluating equality claims in the context of a presidential election system. And in that case, the court reiterated a point that it had made at least four times before when it said in the presidential selection process, one person, one vote constrains the state's freedom in setting up their system for selecting electors. So this is why Professor Lessig's a living legend. I want you guys to understand what he's saying there. Okay, so in Bush v. Gore, there we a lot of people thought there was a great injustice done by the Supreme Court. The conservatives who had said, hey, we're for states' rights said, I don't care about the rights of Florida. I'm, it's important that one person, one vote and equal protection of the laws is so important, I'm gonna invalidate state rights and I'm gonna make sure that is the standard. What Professor Lessig is saying is great, okay, we'll take that standard. Now, obviously, one person does not equal one vote. If all the Republican votes in California are nullified and all the Democratic votes in Mississippi are nullified, they're just obviously not. I'm taking Scalia's standard, which makes sense because you clerk for Scalia. That's right. <laughs> so, um, I, I don't know. It sounds like you might win. You know, I, uh, most people look at this, most lawyers look at this, and they just can't imagine the Supreme Court shaking up the current system. And I get that conservative with a small c reaction. Mm -hmm. But my view is we ought to hold them to the principles they articulate. And we ought to begin to rally people to a very fundamental principle that nobody should disagree on which is equal votes in a presidential election. We all should have equal ability to choose our president. And so what we wanna do, number one, is to gather as many people as we can. Remember when they tried to get the Electoral College not to vote for Donald Trump, this wonderful guy here in California organized a change.org petition and found five million people who signed the change.org petition to say this is outrageous. The Electoral College would undo what the popular will has said. What we want to do is to find those five million and another five million and bring them together to make this simple demand that in a democracy, the votes of citizens ought to be equal. And when you build that kind of movement, and then you go to the Supreme Court and you say, look, your decision um, establishing one person, one vote has been applied to the presidential election system. You have said multiple times, one person, one vote constrains the presidential election system. This is obviously violating one person, one vote. What do you have to justify it? I think there's a chance that they do the right thing. Right, so you guys are starting the Equal Votes campaign in a couple of days on September 14th. Where do people go to help? So you go to equalvotes.us. And you can see what we're doing, and you can you can I hope join. 
either by donating um, or especially by joining and spreading the message. What we do, we need to do is to pull as many people together as quickly as we can. So you need donations to fund the lawsuit. Right, I mean, we've got lawyers who are doing the work pro bono. Um, but you know, this kind of work requires a lot of um, empirical analysis. So we've got to hire experts who do the empirical work to demonstrate why there's an impact that uh, uh, violates equality. Um, and so to pull that together is gonna require a significant amount of expenses. And uh, that's what we're trying to build the money for. So, you know, and I wanna talk about some of the impact that uh, Professor Lessig has had in the different things that he's done in a second. But one more thing about this. So let's say, assume you win, um, what then happens to the system literally? So do we just go to a popular vote overall uh, or is there a different way of apportioning electoral college based on one person, one vote? Well, if we win the principle that one person, one vote should apply to the way the state allocates their electors, the default solution is proportional allocation at the state level. Another solution would be the national popular vote solution. Um, and you know, personally, I think that's the most elegant and most obvious thing that could happen here. But if we could at least get proportional allocation at the state level, what that would do is radically change the nature of presidential campaigns. Because this is the other part people don't think about. Because of winner take all, presidential campaigns are conducted in a handful of states. Um, you know, the battleground states, maybe 12 states um, are the only states that see the candidates. And the candidates focus on those 12 states. Five states basically had uh, more than 90% uh, uh, of the visits that uh, were gonna, uh, and the spending in the presidential campaign that was happening here. And what that means is the candidates are trying to get the votes of that segment of America. But that segment of America does not represent America. They are whiter, they're older. Their industry comes from the 19th century. They are not the America that is represented by all of us. So the point is you've got this system that focuses presidents on a slice of America that is not America. And if we change this by having proportional allocation of electors, then presidential candidates would be interested, Republicans would be interested to come to California and to go in the central part of the state and try to win votes. Because if they win votes in the central part of the state, they actually could get electors from the central part of the state. So you would radically change the, uh, the business model of campaigning in a way that would make this democracy much more vibrant, much more representative. So I'm always amused by the criticism of that, which is that they say, well, then you'd have to make the campaigning really hard. You'd have to campaign all over America. <laughs> yeah, because you're gonna be representing all of America. How preposterous is it to say, no, you should only campaign in Ohio and Florida and Michigan and Pennsylvania. So, and by the way, it doesn't just discount blue states like New York, Vermont, Rhode Island, Hawaii. It also totally discounts red states. They never have to take into account Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, etc. Yeah. They don't have to earn your vote. They don't have to care about your vote. Yeah. They already know which way it's gonna go. If it was proportional, Democrats would be all over Texas going trying to win votes in San Antonio and Houston and other places. And Republicans, you're right, there's a whole heap of votes to get in California, upstate New York, etc. Then yes, you would have to campaign all over America. That's the point. That's the point. So That's you represent the, the deepest red guy in Mississippi and you represent the deepest blue person in Hawaii. Yeah. Yes, that's called democracy. That's right. So so I love the idea. Um, so uh, let, let's talk about uh, some of the things you've done in the past, okay? Because so people will look and go, wait, now you ran for president, uh, but you're, you're not president. <laughs> <laughs> 
so, so that must mean uh, that it didn't work. And so, you know, how about this? So, this like, am I sure that this is going to work? First of all, I got news for you guys out there. Nobody's ever sure anything's going to work. <laughs> okay, you just need a sound argument and, and a good plan. And and look, I, I'm supposed to ask you a question, but I'm just going to because this is Young Turks that we do it differently, right? I'm just going to say what I think your campaign did. Um, so first of all, let's acknowledge that 17 people ran on the Republican side uh, and and several more on the Democratic side and 24 of those folks didn't win, right? And um, but when you got in the race, uh, Hillary Clinton on that day did a speech on campaign finance reform because your campaign was based on money and politics. That if if you think that's a coincidence, you don't know anything about politics. Just stop watching, stop, like you don't know anything, right? That was an obvious reaction to you. So then let me just pause there and ask you about that. When you saw her give that speech, did you think to some degree like, already that's a little bit of a victory? Yeah, and uh, and Bernie took the issue from like number eight on his website to number two on his website. So there was there was clearly a reaction. And they were clearly focused on the fact that um, if they were gonna have a candidate in the race, um, who was going to be in those debates and bring every single issue back to what you called in that great speech I quoted at the beginning of my book, you know, the only issue in American politics. Um, they were going to have to have an answer for that. So they needed to build and defend a reform program people could believe in. And I thought that was incredible to, to see that kind of reaction. And I believe all of them in some sense really wanted that. What they needed to be was pushed to make it central. In the debate, and uh, and so you know our big fight. Um, I said I would run if we could raise a million bucks uh, in 30 days, and we did that in less than 30 days. And then the fight was to get into the debates. And at first, they didn't include my name on the polls that were necessary to qualify in the debate. And we had a big fight about you know this is a little bit of a catch 22. But then when they did include my name in the polls, leading up to the second debate. Um, uh, I got a call from my campaign manager on the Monday of the, of, uh, the week at the end of October. And he said, you're going to have three polls. It's done. You're going to be in the next debate. And at the end of the week, he got a call from the DNC. And the DNC said, you know, we're sorry, but uh, you don't understand the rules. Um, you think the rules are you got to get three polls at 1% within six weeks of the debate. It's actually three polls at 1% at least six weeks before the debate. And then we showed them where they had said exactly the opposite. And they said, well, I'm sorry, that's just what the rules are. So they changed the rules and I was out of the debate. So the opportunity, the reason why this gamble made sense, the reason why this you know, insanity of like jumping into a presidential race made sense, uh, was the opportunity to get in that debate and to focus those Democrats on this fundamental issue. And um, I, you know, I was glad I took that gamble um, and I was surprised they played the games they did to keep me out of those debates. But I think if we'd been in the debates, we could have made more progress in getting Hillary at least to take this issue on. That was the most frustrating thing about that. I mean, you know, she was the candidate who actually had the strongest platform dealing with money and politics. She was much more aggressive about public funding than Bernie was. And, and she actually had a plan and a system for bringing it about. And the one thing everybody thought about and, hit, and Donald Trump played on when they thought about Hillary Clinton was she was corrupt and tied into the money and all this um, you know, stuff about her relationship to these big funders. And if she had just grabbed this issue, <laughs> Yeah, and been like been like Lyndon Baines Johnson with civil rights, like just surprised everybody, or Richard Nixon with going to China. If she had made this her cause, I think she should she could have cut ten points 
off of what Donald Trump is getting. Yeah, so of course she's deeply frustrating and, and this is in the news all over uh, this week because she's coming out with her book, What Happened? Which I think is a hilarious title, but like, what happened? <laughs> uh, okay, just missing the question mark. Um, so uh, is that she blames everybody for different things, but if she had just actually ran on the issues, and issues that you say like she had a decent plan for. I, I would have wanted a much stronger plan, but it was like was a hell of a lot better than Donald Trump's. But she ran attack ads, she didn't run on the issues. And they tried so hard to keep you out of the race, but actually, and out of the debates. If you were in the debates, it might have forced her to yeah. run on that issue and she might have won. That's my point. That's my point. I'd like keeping me out was the biggest mistake they could have made because it's not like, you know. Nobody knew what was gonna happen. The polling we had done showed that this was completely open. If there was a candidate on this issue, it could have completely changed everything. But I didn't get into this because I believed I was certain to get into the White House. I got into that race because I believed it was essential to be in those debates, to force the Democratic Party to finally come clean about the need to be the reform party in America because America was desperate for a reform party. And what they did was to rally around the guy who said drain the swamp and lock her up. Even though that guy is a thousand times more criminal than anything anybody ever suggested about Hillary Clinton, except for the you know, the crazy stuff. Yeah. But, but the point is, if they if they had let me be there and to make this point um, and allowed the debate to shift in this direction and to really stand up strong and allow her scream to scream back at me about how she will fight to make sure that money does not control uh, Washington. She would have won a thousand times more support from yeah, the people who care. They, they are maddening. You know, they think that progressives who are fighting for all these different changes, whether it's Medicare for all, fifteen dollars minimum wage, money out of politics, they think like, oh, we're trying to hurt them. We're trying to help you. Just accept the help for God's sake. So, and now look to the point about keeping you, changing the rules to keep you out of debate. So this is another topic that people talk about. All the time. Did the DNC rig the primaries? So, rig is an interesting word and it has several different connotations. So, I think that it needlessly confuses the topic. But so, because some people assume it means you changed votes, like people actually voted for Bernie, but they changed the votes so Hillary won. I don't think that's what it means. I think it means changing the rules in the way that they did with you to make sure they got the desired result. So, in that sense, isn't what they did with you in changing the debate rules, rigging the primary? Yeah, I mean plainly. Um, and you know, a lot of people. It turns out that the FEC has rules about this, and the rule is you're not allowed to change the rules. Um, and the FEC um, has a specific regulation that bans what they did. So a lot of people were trying to push me after the campaign was over to just bring a lawsuit to make this absolutely clear. And you know, at that point, I was like, you know, there's no, there's no return from this. But it is, it was plainly what that was. And, um, and it really, you know, hurts. Not because it hurt me, but it hurts because I really think the Democratic Party would have been a stronger party. You know, if Hillary Clinton had said, look, I promise you, if you give me a Democratic Congress in the first hundred days, we will radically change the way money affects politics in Washington. We will have public funding of elections, we will have an amendment to repeal Citizens United out the door, 
give me a Republican Congress and we'll get that. Um, then it would, it would have been not just those people who wanted to see Hillary Clinton elected, who would have been out there fighting to make sure she was elected. It would have been all those other people who are so frustrated, including Republicans. There was an amazing study done at the University of Maryland in the middle of the last election, in July of 2016, where they surveyed people about attitudes. It was a huge survey, like 3,000 people surveyed. And what they found was on these issues, America has never been more angry, never been more passionate. Um, and there is no difference between right wing and left wing on these issues. You take, does money, do corporations have too much power in the political system? 91% of, of Democrats, 90% of Republicans. On every one of these issues about how this system has corrupted representativeness, there is no difference between Republicans and Democrats. And this is the great opportunity that we just left on the table. Somehow our candidate became associated with the idea of the status quo. And that candidate, Donald Trump, became associated with the idea of ending the influence of big money in Washington. But of course, that was a complete lie. And the fact that she allowed that to be the framing is the most frustrating thing about that election. Yeah. So. I was a fiscal conservative, I was a legal conservative, I was a Republican. And part of the reason I left the Republican Party was because it became insanely right wing. They moved the Overton window so far to the right that it became hard to stay in the party. But the other reason was because they got so thoroughly corrupted. And and it was, it's so obvious that all they want is tax cuts for the rich, every single thing goes towards tax cuts for rich, multinational corporations and deregulation. And what a wonderful coincidence that those are their exact owners. Yeah. And, and I don't have to say who would believe that because I know the answer. Nobody would believe that. Another poll, 93% of Americans believe that politicians represent their donors over their voters. Republicans and Democrats alike, we know the system is fixed, we know it. So, okay, the Republican Party is almost completely corrupted. But now the Democratic Party, unfortunately, I mean, look at what they did during the primaries. Look at their constant defense of this insane system. They've now put themselves in a situation where they seem more corrupt, more elitist as they defend the status quo. It's and so I guess my question to you in that regard is: since they are hooked on the money, it's not. Is it not a matter of learning a lesson? It's just a matter of they get paid to to make sure that they don't learn that lesson. Yeah. And in a sense, they get paid to lose. Yeah, I mean, you know, the cynicism Americans have towards the political system is death to the Democrats and life to the Republicans. Because the message of the Republicans is Ronald Reagan's message from 1981. Government's not the solution, government is the problem. And that's what most, Amer most Americans think, but they think it not for the reasons Reagan did. Reagan thought it because he had this kind of libertarian idealism in his head that you just get rid of government and everything takes care of itself. We saw how that worked with the financial crisis of 2008. Right. But Americans believe it because they think the government's corrupt. So government's the problem because government's out there working not for them, but working for the funders of campaigns. So Americans don't like government. They don't want the government to solve their problems, not because they don't think there are problems government could solve, but because they don't think this government can solve it because this government is corrupt. So if that's what they think, and you have Democrats coming forward and say, here's all the ways we're going to solve your problems. Americans like rolling their eyes and saying, give me a break, give me a break. You're not gonna solve my problems because you represent the problem. The problem is the government. So that's why the Republicans win from this because the Republicans view is let's just 
dismantle government. And the cynics are like, I'm not, why should I pay taxes for this completely corrupted system? I'm happy to sign up for no more taxes so long as it strangles this system. Not because I'm a libertarian, but because I don't want to fund that corrupt system. So this is why it is so essential that the Democrats finally come around to realizing that unless they can restore faith in the system, they have nothing to sell. Because everything they're about is about trying to use government to make society better, especially for the weaker, but better for all of us. And until they can make it believe, believable that government can do that, they are never gonna win in the message they try to sell. So it's an obvious trap and they've fallen right into it and they've fallen into it for a decade and that's why, decades. That's why I say they're paid to lose because if you actually wanted to win, you would obviously see the trap that it is. Mm. Barney Frank told one of our reporters, he said, what do you want us to do? Just to take none of the banker money and have the Republicans take 100%? We should at least take 20%. No, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> Taking 20% is a perpetual losing strategy. And then defending big government, which is bathed in that corruption, is a perpetual losing strategy. Yeah. So the American people are incredibly right to be frustrated with the Democrats, but I don't think they're ever gonna learn that lesson because they're paid not to learn that lesson. Yeah, and so then how do you get out of it? I mean, this is the really hard thing. I've spent the last year, I was on leave, I've been writing, I've been trying to I finish a, another book about this, but the really hard thing that I hit all the time is I don't see the way out now. Um, I mean, you and I have been working on the framers way out, the Article 5 convention, which would give us a chance to actually change the rules in a fundamental way. But bracketing that for a second, like what is the way? to get the system to leverage itself out of this problem. Because you, you just think about the Democratic Party on its own. To become a leader in the Democratic Party right now, you gotta play into the progressive base. Because the progressives are the only people with ideas, they're the people with the passion, they're the people out there doing something. Okay, how do you play into the progressives? Well, you talk about the progressives' issues, right? Mm -hmm. And the progressives' issues, I, I'm all with, I'm you know absolutely a progressive on every one of these issues, but it's not, the issue fundamentally of reforming the system and giving us a government we all can trust. That's not sexy enough inside of that debate. Mm -hmm. So the party breeds leaders who are leaders for a faction, just like the Republicans breed leaders who are leaders for a faction. But what we need is somehow to be able to rise above the factions, yeah. to find a way to unite people behind these ideas that we know all of us believe in, but there's no mechanism in the party for doing that. So that, that's that's why I started Just Democrats. So uh, I mean, as everybody knows, I'm an enormous believer in Wolfpack, which is a group that I founded. I think that uh, you absolutely must have an amendment to get money out of politics, otherwise we're lost. So that was the whole half the point of this conversation, right? But in order to be able to get that done, one of the other things that you need is you need a, a strong progressive wing of the Democratic Party who most importantly, that's why I say this is the only litmus test. So as much as we care deeply about the 24 things on our platform and the four pillars that we'll be talking about soon, there's only one litmus test. You cannot take corporate PAC money or lobbyist money, okay? So if you are uncorrupted, it frees you to run strong campaigns that appeals to voters and not to donors. And my idea is that's the you're never going to convince Democratic establishment to, oh, you're right, Oh, I've been corrupted. Oh, I'll give up the corruption. So in politics, asking pretty please is not the correct strategy. Beating them 
defeating them is the correct strategy. So, I mean, look, so the primaries haven't begun yet. We're gonna primary the living hell out of them. We're gonna run uncorrupted campaigns. We're gonna run campaigns of real Americans. So Paula Jean Swearingen is running in West Virginia against Joe Manchin. Her Reddit got more, was higher ranked than Bernie Sanders Reddit. It's among the top 10 ever, okay? So, and what is she? She's a mom in West Virginia and she says, can't we have jobs and not poison my kids with the toxins in the water? Is that too much to ask? Mm. What government can't do that? Our representatives can't fight for that. Mm. And so, and what has happened? So we then turn around and go, okay, we want Medicare for all. And all of a sudden it goes from 72 co-sponsors in the House to 118 co-sponsors. And it goes from just Bernie in the Senate to now today you see it popping up all over. Now I think we're up to 13, who knows by now we might be up to 14 senators that are supporting Medicare for all. Why? Not because they woke up one day and thought, "Oh golly gee, well, you guys were right all along, right? It's because they're afraid of losing. Joe, even Joe Manchin on Medicare for all said we should explore that. Joe Manchin saying we should explore single payer healthcare. Why? Because he's got a tough primary fight. Now with someone who's really popular. So you either get them to change by the persuasion of hardball politics that you're gonna lose your power or you just simply defeat them. Yeah, so I'm all for people who are able to run and win in the cleanest way possible. But more important to me is that they commit absolutely to support in public funding in congressional elections. That's, Absolutely. that's the litmus test for me. Because you know, it might be you've got a district where you just can't win like that. You know, but if you could win and have that commitment so that on day one, we've got a majority of members of the House who've committed to this reform, that's in my mind the real victory to work for. No, no, absolutely. And so that's why I mentioned that as the only litmus test. You can't take the corporate PAC money, but if you get into office, your number one priority is public funding of elections. And by the way, let's just flip it for a second. And so again, Republicans, stay with us, because let me just break it down for you in a couple of ways that I think you'll agree with us on. Because we, you, you agree with us that there is corruption. There's corruption in the Democratic Party, there's corruption in the government, we wanna clean it up. You wanna clean it up, you don't want your guys working for defense contractors or uh, or multinational corporations, etc. So um, in, in it's not really, what I wanna end is the private financing of elections. Because private financing yeah. gets you yeah. working for private interests. Again, if you're a conservative Republican, you know that's true. Yeah. If, if George Soros gives you money, if you're a politician, what do you do? You serve George Soros, you know that, we know that. And sometimes they'll ask me like, oh yeah, are you gonna take George Soros' money out of politics? God damn right we are, of course we are, right? Because we actually want to stop the corruption. And so it's not that bad people are taking Soros' money or even necessarily the Koch brothers' money. It's that whether they're good or bad, you're gonna, yeah. as you say, lean to the green. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they are dependent. They are in a system of dependence where they spend 30 to 70% of their time sucking up to people with money. Now, is it any surprise that if you spend 30 to 70% of your time sucking up to people with money, you don't turn around and become a leader? You're not able to think like a leader. What you're able to do is to think, what will this do to my ability to raise money from these people who have all this money? And the only way to get out of that is to change the economy of influence for funding campaigns. And that's just to change the way you fund campaigns. So Republicans like Richard Painter have said, you know, let's have everybody have a $200 voucher to fund campaigns, to fund elections. So everybody gets a $200 voucher, they use it, they give it out to whomever they want. If that happened, 
then the way congressmen funded their campaigns would change tomorrow. They wouldn't be worried about sucking up to the big money. They'd be worried about making sure they've got a thousand people in their district who are interested in giving them their campaign money. And that is the simplest perfectly constitutional change we could make tomorrow. And that's what we should be fighting for. But what's so frustrating is it's almost impossible to get 90% of politicians, especially Democrats, to even talk about it. And whenever they talk about it, you know, even the great Bernie would only say, well, if this is something for the long term, this is something you know, for the future. And you're like, well, what are you gonna get in the short term if you're not dealing with this right now? Because what we know is these people sucking up to money all the time cannot lead. That's not how a leader is bred. And so sometimes Democrats will say, well, if you do public financing, and as we have in some states, and you end the private financing, well, sometimes Republicans win. They won in Arizona, they won in Maine. Yeah, yeah it's called a democracy, yeah. and sometimes they win. Yeah. And so, so Republicans, we, we're not telling you, oh, there's a secret plan hatched to get you guys. No, in, it, when you end the private financing, as is logically going to happen, you will win a lot of the times. And then so will Democrats. But the Democrats and the Republicans who win will be more responsive to yeah. the people who put them in office. Yeah. And then the other example that now the big Democratic politicians and groups use is, well, if you guys do an Article 5 convention, you know, Republicans can go to that convention and so propose their ideas. Yes, they can. It's called a democracy. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know if you know this, Republicans can also vote. And we're, we can't <laughs> take that away. And I don't want it to. If you believe in democracy, you don't want to take stuff like that away. Yeah. And so a Republican can come to the Article 5 Commission and go, my idea is tax vouchers. So that at least, hey, I give him 200 bucks, he represents me for my 200 bucks rather than Koch brothers or Soros or term limits or whatever it might be. And we come in and say, end the private financing. I might say, hey, corporations don't have constitutional rights. That's what a convention is for. It's on a single topic, in my opinion, on campaign finance reform. But we discuss different solutions for that. Yeah. But it's not an accident that the corrupt politicians on the Republican and Democratic side don't want it. No, and, and it's because it's mean, change. I, I, I'm signed up to the DCCC's email list. It's the most depressing thing in the world. <laughs> yes. And they've just had a recent series of emails attacking the terror of the Article 5 convention that the right wing is trying to bring about. And of course, this is you know what we've talked about from the very beginning. Once it is framed in partisan ways, it turns on the money machine to raise money in ter by terrifying people about that convention. So everybody's terrified we're gonna have a right wing convention. People on the right do the same thing about the idea of a left wing convention when they want to attack what Wolfpack is doing, things like that. What we've gotta find is a way to rise above that and say, look, Republicans have been pushing constitutional change quite vigorously and honestly for a long time. Democrats have been pushing constitutional change quite vigorously and honestly for a long time. Let's sit down together and figure out how we can have an opportunity not to amend the Constitution, to just propose the ideas so that the states have a chance to think about them. That, yeah. that I think is the ultimate. Yeah, and I think a lot of those larger progressive organizations who are also hooked on donor money in Washington just flat out lie about it. They, they, they leave out the part that 38 states have to ratify anything proposed in a convention. Yeah. So they're like, oh yeah, what if the Republicans decide that they're gonna kill every third born in America? Yeah. Yeah, well, 38 <laughs> states aren't gonna ratify that. Right. They're like, oh, you know, they could do this in a convention and have the lizard people rule. 
After the convention, 38 states, including deeply blue states and yeah. yes, deeply red states, have to ratify. Yeah. But then they add the lie that drives me nuts is then they say, oh, I don't know, but we don't know whether the convention will have the power to change the rules for ratifying amendments to the Constitution, because the original convention changed the rules. So maybe this convention will do it, which is idiotic historically, but also strategically really stupid because the right is likely to have a convention. And if the left has gone around saying they have the power to change the rules in order to ratify the amendments, then maybe the right will say we have the power to change the rules to ratify amendments once they see they're not gonna get to 38. I mean, the, the stupidity of this fight the frustration that it produces, I think, is just one of the most depressing features of the current American political system. Because what is your answer, people on the left? Like when Common Cause says there should be no convention, um, we should instead be proposing amendments to the Constitution through Congress. You're like, there is zero chance Congress is going to propose that amendment, zero chance. A convention could at least propose it, but you're blocking a convention, there's zero chance for an amendment. So what is your solution? What is your plan? And they don't have a plan. They don't have a plan. They have a plan for raising money. And their plan for raising money is terrify people about all the damage that a convention should do so that they're eager to send you money, send Common Cause money to defend us from the evil conventions. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I remember when I talked to them a long time ago when I was I had an open mind and they and I naively thought they might have an open mind. And I said, okay, I genuinely asked them, what is your plan? They said, Congress. I said, well, you know, you can't pass it through Congress. And they're like, yeah, we know. I mean, you can't even get the Disclose Act. Can you tell us who's bribing you? The answer is no, we won't tell you. <laughs> and we're losing votes every day on that, right? So then I said, okay, what else is your plan? Supreme Court. Oops, there goes the Supreme Court. Supreme that plan doesn't make any sense at all. Now we'd have to wait 20, 30 years, etc. I said, okay, now what's the Come on, you gotta have something better than this. They said demographic shifts. <laughs> so now we have to wait 40, 50 years to make that happen. In other words, you don't want anything to happen. It, but they can't afford to be honest about that. Yeah. And they dis, and it's not just common cause. It's yeah. unfortunately a lot of those groups that don't get funding from the people. They get funding from large donors. Yeah. And the one thing large donors, Look, a lot of them on the progressive side are good people. They want equal rights for blacks and Latinos and Muslims yeah. and gays and Jews and everything, but they don't want too much change. Yeah. No, it it just reminds me of my favorite line from John Snow. You know, you're right. It's a terrible plan. What's your plan? What's your plan? Because <laughs> right. they don't have a plan. I mean, we've got a problem. We've got a democracy that's crashing on the rocks. We have no belief in the American people that the system represents them. And it doesn't represent them. In a thousand ways, it doesn't represent them. We need a way to fix this. So what's the plan? And if the plan is just demographic change, or we're gonna sit back and wait for the Supreme Court to save us, that, that is hopeless. That is the most depressing reality for American democracy in the 21st century. Yeah, so let's end on an optimistic note instead, okay? So look, uh, so you raised a million dollars to get into the presidential race. And what did it do? It immediately moved the candidates. It, as we talked about earlier, Hillary Clinton all of a sudden giving speeches on campaign finance reform, Bernie moving it up on his list. If they had actually not rigged it and led you in the debates, it could have moved it up enough to actually win the election. 93% think that you represent the donors and not the voters. What do you need, 95% to realize it's a winning issue? So even that, that million dollars, yes, did not make you president, but it moved the issue. And now look at Medicare for all. 
So we fight on that issue and all of a sudden, we're beginning to move on that issue. Nobody's naive, they always say like, "Oh, you guys don't know, you're not practical, right? So we, the practical strategy is to do nothing apparently. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Right, no, our strategy is practical. We do it state by state, we do it issue by issue. So my argument is that every dollar given small donations makes us more responsive, all of these groups, makes us more responsive to those donors which are Actual Americans that are given 10 bucks at a time, instead of the guys who are given a million bucks at a time. And, and that you did move the presidential race. I think just as Democrats did move Medicare for all. And Wolfpack has five states and people say it's not 34 states yet. Yeah, we've got four full-time employees who barely get paid. Okay, yeah. the fact that they have gotten five states, including the largest state in the country is amazing. We got Republican legislators in Missouri, we got them in New Hampshire. We didn't get it through both houses, but we got it through Republican legislatures. Yeah. You know why? When we go to their Republican voters, who then ask their legislators, hey, you better be against this corruption, right? We say, hey, let me ask you a question. Do you think government is corrupt? Almost every Republican voter says yes. Then we ask them a question nobody's ever asked them. Who do you think corrupted them? Isn't that amazing yeah. that the media never asked that mm -hmm. question? Mm -hmm. So I think that if you if you just try, and you're based on small donors, there is a path to victory. And that path is not easy and it is long and arduous. No. But, but the example I always use, Larry, women didn't have a right to vote. How in the world could you get the right to vote if you can't vote in the first place? Yeah. Now that was impossible. That was impossible. You know, and I think part of it, and you know, I never planned it like this, but part of it is being willing to lose. You gotta be willing to take yes. on fights that you're not sure you're gonna win. There's a great book about the Justice Department now called The Chicken Shit Club. And it tells a story of Comey going to speak to a whole group of young US attorneys and saying, I want people who've never lost a case to raise your hand. And a bunch of them eagerly raised their hand and he said, okay, you guys are all the chicken shit club. I you're love the people it. who never take a risk. And he said, if you're not willing to take a risk, then you don't deserve to be a US attorney. And I think it's the same thing here. You can't fight for fundamental change if the only fights you take are ones you know you're gonna win. You gotta be able to say, look, I might lose this one. And if I lose it, it'll be really horrible. But that's what this fight takes. The willingness to be the first thousand people who you know, get slaughtered so that the next thousand people can actually get over the hill. And, and so you know, I actually believe we should win this case. And I actually believe we have a good shot if we have a way to present it to them that the court would actually consider it seriously. But whether we do or not, if we can get five million people to join the fight that says we are equal citizens and we deserve an equal vote, that will change things whether we win or not. And if you, at a bare minimum, if you expose the hypocrisy where they say, yeah, Bush v. Gore is not really good precedent. Yeah. Okay, it makes the next case easier to win exactly and the next right. one after that. Yeah. So. And plus, you're right, so you might just win this case. Yeah. So one last time, where do they go if they want to help? Equalvotes.us. So the, it's the Equal Votes campaign, it's the Equal Citizens that is putting this on. It is the very core of our democracy, one person, one vote. Right. Larry Lessig, thanks for fighting on the right side again. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for having me, Jim.